walking through what this church is about. Um, this is a great time for us to do it. Not only is it a great time because uh, we're four and a half years into uh, being a local church ministry, and we've just had so many new folks and just being able to remember these things, but even just as we look towards the possibility of moving into a permanent facility for a footprint on the west side of Indy. It's just so important for us to understand the reality of who we are, what this church is seeking to do, and how we're going about doing that. So we've been talking about that this fall together, and uh, we've been doing that over the last four weeks. We've been talking about who we are, and here at Harvest, uh, we call this the four pillars of, uh, of harvest and the four pillars are we proclaim the authority of God's word without apology. We lift high the name of Jesus in worship. We believe firmly in the power of prayer and we share the good news of Jesus with boldness. Hey, let me tell you about Jesus. That's what the four pillars are about. So I'd like for you all to stand. Do it with me. Actions as well. Grab your Bible. Kids class. Here we go. All right, you ready? All right. That wasn't too really... Uh, let me, let, me, let me get another running start. Are you ready to go? All right, here we go. Bible's up. We. Hey, let me tell you about Jesus. All right, that's what it's about. Go ahead and grab a seat. Uh, now it's time to begin... A uh, little bit of a shift. Uh, we're going to be talking about what are we seeking to accomplish? What are we seeking to accomplish? And uh, I could sum it up this way in one kind of a word. Five G's. Is that one word? Two words? I don't know. It's just a number and a letter. Five G's. Um, five G's like, uh, Doug, what's a five G disciple? Well, uh, we're going to be talking about that for the next five Sundays, including today. We're going to be taking one at a time, and the first one is glorifying, glorifying the Lord. Um, What's up, Doug, with the 1G thing, 5G thing? Well, two things about that, actually. Number one, it's a way just to remember easier. All of these words, these five traits of a disciple of Christ that we are seeking to advance and, and get deeper in as a church, as disciples following hard after Christ. These are the five things. And it just helps us remember the first one is glorifying, growing. And you can see the others up on the screen. The second thing is the whole uh, techo deal. Um, 5G. Uh, telephones. I have no idea what... 1G was, or if it ever was something, but I'm just going to make it up. 1G was the rotary dial phone, okay, kind of a thing. And then came along 2G. No idea what that is. Don't ever remember the term 2G personally, but I'm just going to say this. It was push button phone. It was like push button. I remember as a kid doing the dial thing. I loved that because you would push it and then it would kind of go, no, 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 slow back. And I loved that. Oh, I wondered how the me- mechanism in that thing worked. But then it was push button and it's like, beep. And it's like, so techy. Okay, am I looking old right now? Yeah, but then I do remember 3G. 3G actually wasn't that long ago. And 3G was kind of like, hey, you want faster phone reception? You want faster downloading? Get 3G. And today it is now what? 4G. 
Uh, 4G, it's like, hey, if you have 4G, like, connection, I mean, like, for real connection, you are lightning fast tech, oh, baby. That's kind of the thing with it. It's just coming, it's coming, it's coming. Um, uh, part of what 5G is all about is we're beyond that. We are, like, so ahead of technology. Uh, but in the thing of this, what's in the future? What's about the next generations to come if we're here? That's 5G. Uh, by the way, when I say next gen, I'm also not referring to a specific age group. I'm talking about all of us. Hey, here at Harvest, we want to raise people that are increasingly seeing five traits growing in their own walk as a disciple of Christ, that they would be influencing the generations today and in the future. That's what these are all about. So that's why 5G. Well, let's narrow it in. We're on G number one, and it's glorifying. What's G number one? Glorifying. glorifying. Grab your Bibles, turn to Colossians chapter 1. Now, I want to let you know what we're, how we're kind of going about these next uh, uh, five weeks here. Um, usually, if you've been around here long enough, you know that we're a church. Uh, generally, on Sundays, I go to a, a, a book of the Bible, and we walk through sections of the Bible, verse by verse, book by book. And I love doing that. That's mostly how we do things. But every so often, we need to kind of cover things in such a way that it's systematizing together what Scripture says. That's what's happening here in uh, our present kind of series this fall. Uh, It's more topical coming out of a text as we dive into it. And what we're going to be doing with 5Gs is every Sunday, we're going to be going and grabbing a a, a couple verses out of Colossians, uh, laying out what that G is out of Colossians. And then I'm going to be taking us to somewhere else in the scripture to add to that, like today, to kind of tell a story of a real person who went that so that we can see it, feel it, breathe it, eat it and taste it, all right? So that's what we're going to be happening. But we are on 5G disciples, and 5G disciples embrace the ultimate purpose of the universe. Does that not sound cool? The ultimate purpose of the universe. And by the way, I want to start out with this. The ultimate purpose of the universe is not you. And it's definitely not me. The ultimate purpose of the universe is God. That's what it's all about. And that's what we're seeking to be. It's about honoring him. It's about glorifying him. It's about seeing him recognized for who he is, glorifying. Uh, Right before we jump into the text, uh, one kind of final statement. When we talk about glorifying, I think we have a a common misconstrued thought. And that's oftentimes that God is like this big vat, and a vat that is like partially filled, maybe half filled with glory, and we're here to fill the rest of it. That's not the case. Do understand Psalm 33, 9 says, he was complete before he spoke and formed the world. I mean, God is fully glorified and complete in himself. The Godhead is fully complete. It's not about us making God fill his love cup more, Okay, that's not what's going on. This is about actually the reality of when we give God glory, we are doing, uh, what we are doing is entering into the purpose for what life was for. We're actually entering into what we were created to do. God's not missing something and he needs us. This is what we were created to do and to be. So glorifying. Let's go to Colossians 1 as you're there. Y'all there? 
Here we go. Colossians 1. Let me start in verse 15. Uh, He, speaking of Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By the way, we don't have time, but that's not talking about birth order. It's talking about he was before all else. Uh, The firstborn of all creation, for by him, look at this, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Let's pause there just for a second. I want to make sure in this that you understand that when we talk about Jesus Christ, we're not just talking about some dude in history that excelled. We're not just talking about some kind of like prophet that was like an ultimate man. We are talking about the one who created everything. When we talk about Jesus Christ, we are literally talking about the one who created the earth, who created the heavens, who created everything. That's why he deserves our glory. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything... He might be preeminent. And how much should he be preeminent? In everything. Everything. Christ is about uh, having first place. So a a disciple of Christ, a 5G disciple of Christ, a glorifying disciple of Christ, is someone who's essentially saying, I want for my job to honor God. I want for my finances to honor God. I want for my relationships to honor God. I want for my family, for my marriage. I want for my health crisis, if I'm going through one, to honor God. I want through heart, my heartbreak to honor the Lord into it. Everything is about glorifying the Lord. And when we're doing that, we are bringing glory to the Lord. And that's what we've been created to do. Harvest, we were raised... We were created to be disciples that glorify the Lord. That's it. And we want to be increasingly about that. Oh, that in everything, he might be preeminent. I got to tell you, it's one of those things where I'm just like, oh, Lord, could I please just like step out of me? Oh, God, could I just like get off the radar of my life and this actually really be about you? Doug, I want that. What does it look like? Well, turn to Job chapter 1. Turn to Job chapter 1. A little left of center in your Bible. Job chapter 1. You need to understand when we're going through Job that we are reading a text here that was long before the tabernacle ever existed or the temple ever existed. This is like ancient, ancient times, the story of Job. And let me begin... um, Reading here, scene one, verse one. Uh, Here we go, Job chapter one. 
there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. Let me pause here for just a minute because I want to make sure that you understand we're talking about a real man and we're not talking about the land of Oz. Okay, this is not Dorothy's like ancient uncle. Uh, This is Job, a man who really lived and he lived in a real place called the land of Uz. Uh, And that man, look at it, begins to tell us about him. That man was blameless and upright. He was one who feared God and turned away from evil. I got to tell you, what a stud. I mean, really, what a stud of a guy. And we're going to see more of why that's the case here in just a minute. Uh, He was a real man in a real place. He feared God. God was the idol of his life in everything that he wanted. And the fear of the Lord means that Job saw God as really, really big. I mean, like way big, increasingly big. God was huge in his eyes. God was amazing to Job, stunning to Job, just awe-inspiring, lay-me-flat, God-rocks kind of a situation. I mean, Job just saw God big. Other people weren't idols. Stuff wasn't the idol. What people thought of me wasn't the idol. God was his idol. Oh, that that would be me. Oh, that that would be us, true? Man, I want that. First point, the fear of God was his foundation in glorifying God. The fear of God was the foundation in glorifying God. Now understand, when I talk about the fear of God, there's really two aspects of that. There's this thing that's like, God is so cool. Like, God is like, wow, stun me. Woo, kind of a thing. And then there's also the aspect of God where it's like face on the ground, shaking and trembling god is god and i'm not in the process job feared god and notice he feared god and he lived blamelessly as a result of it he feared god and he lived uprightly as a result of it i say it this way when you fear god you live differently You live differently. So how does a person know if they're growing in their fear of the Lord? If your life is continuously increasing, looking differently, is your life? I mean, honestly, as you process life today versus a year ago, is it kind of processed the same, handled the same, reacted the same, lived the same? It shouldn't be. It should be changing and increasing as time goes along. That God would be bigger and bigger, and that shows itself. I want to add to this right now, that Job was not some like human freak of nature. Okay, I think sometimes we can look at this, and it's like, and we'll see, actually Satan responds the same way in some ways here, where it's like, come on, man, who, who can live like this? Oh, they did. Oh, they did. And Job did. And Job was not like some superhumanoid. Job was a regular man. In fact, we really find that out later in the story of Job, where Job has a real hard time processing everything, just like you and I would. Verse 2 and 3. Let's learn some more about Job. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. So how many kids did Job have? Ten. And he possessed 7,000 sheep. 3,000 camels, 
500 yoke of oxen. By the way, oxen are just like a manly animal, aren't they? I mean, 500 yoke of them and 500 female donkeys and very many servants, all the employees to take care of them. So that this man was the greatest of all of the East. The point here is that Job was stinking rich. I mean, he was really a tycoon mogul. In fact, uh, uh, just up 65 north of Lafayette is Fair Oaks Farm. I, I love stopping there. Munster cheese is my favorite from there. And uh, we stop there periodically. And yet we see this like mini little Disneyland thing-ish, you know, like a farm thing going on. It's so cute. They got a little store and they got a little barn. They got this kind of stuff. But it's a huge corporation. In fact, Fair Oaks Farm, you can get on the website and you can see, has over 12,000 head of cattle for dairy cattle. Uh, They also have 1,125,000 square feet of barns. I can't even fathom how big that is. Fair Oaks Farm is actually one of the largest dairy farms in the country. Now, we kind of go, yeah. No, listen, we're talking massive amounts of production. And when we go to Job, he actually, the numbers listed here are about 11,000 animals. And this is in an ancient time where, are you kidding? This dude was a mogul. And in this day and age, right now in political world where we have talks about, let's all hate the rich, One of the cool things, what does the text tell us about Job? He feared God. How cool is that? How cool is that? In fact, you could go to Job 29 and take a look because it tells us in Job 29 that along with this fact, Job was one who was actually when princes and knights would come before him, they would be silent before him because he was so great. It also tells us in Job chapter 29 that Job was one who cared for the poor and the orphans and the widows. And this boy had the zeros in the bank to do it. This was a man who lived differently and was mega rich. That's what the text is telling us at this point. Verse 5. Uh, When the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. I'm sorry, let me go to verse 4. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one of his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would arise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Let me just briefly state through what's going on here. Uh, At each child's birthday, a feast was held. And it would be a great feast, and all the siblings would gather together. I'm going to tell you, it's just the testimony of a family that really cared and loved itself, each other, in it. Um, This was not some drunken, bringe, self-crazy frat party. This is just a celebration of what was taking place. And we see in the text here, Job acting in an amazing way. Job actually was acting as the Old Testament family father who was officiating as priest in behalf of his family. Job was consecrating his family. 
Job was dedicating his family. Job was declaring his family. And again, please understand, this is all ever before there was the Old Testament pre-structure set up. Job provided his kids great houses, great opportunities, great training, and great love. But in it all, Job first provided them first the vertical reality. Can I just say men and dads? Are we stepping up to the plate? This dude loved God and his family. Well, we jump into a next scene, uh, verse 6. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. I'm telling you, it's so hard for me not to spend more time talking about some things with this. But this is one of, I think, the coolest passages in Scripture. There is theology in here that is so broad and deep and wide that we've got to grasp some of this. Here's what's going on. The Godhead, the Lord said, all right, come before me. And who shows up before him? Well, all these, as it calls here, these, these sons. And, and then, uh, I'm not going to get into that. But then all of a sudden, that includes Satan. Satan comes into the throne room. I just want to remind you, God's in full control. And if God tells Satan to come here, he comes like the little dog. I'm here. I want for you to know this is great encouragement. Sometimes we give Satan way too much credit and authority. Satan is not all-powerful. Satan is not all-knowing. Satan, as we'll see here in just a minute, cannot be all places at one time. But we have the situation where he comes before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Listen, the Godhead knew, okay? But look at this. And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. I just want to pause and say, be very afraid. Be very afraid. And I'm dead serious about it. He's walking, creeping around, looking to whom he can devour. And the Lord said to Satan, hey, have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Friends, this is an absolute critical statement in the whole story of Job. If you don't get this statement, you don't get the story of Job. But what's going on here? God is literally saying, oh, so you've been walking around, my friend, huh? Hey, have you seen my man, Job? I got to tell you, out of this, I wonder if God would ever say that about me. Or if it's like, oh, gosh, got all these people. But, or, or would he pick you up? Please understand, Job is not God's pawn. Job is actually now about to enter into a ministry opportunity. And get this, a ministry opportunity to Satan himself. Because what's the whole problem with the whole Satan gig? God created all the angels, and out of that, Satan leads this revolt against God. I don't need you. I want to be God. God knows this whole thing. And God's like looking around. Hey, you want to know what it looks like for someone to actually live faithfully under, under me? Look at him. Look at him, my friend. 
because you couldn't live like that. I got to tell you, this is an amazing, amazing event that's taking place. Job doesn't know any of this is happening. Have you considered my servant Job? Verse 9, then Satan answered the Lord. I actually think this is a good comeback. Does Job not, or does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the works of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But wait a second, God, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face, i.e. like I did. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. I'm going to tell you, friends, even God controls what Satan can and can't do. God puts fences around. And this is part of the reason why the other week when I said, listen, when you're going through trials, you better be careful if you're like, God, or I'm sorry, Satan's bringing a trial on me. Understand this. God allows what God allows. This has just got to blow all of our minds and our thinking about trials in life. And it's all held right here. So Satan goes out of the presence of the Lord and essentially seeks to bring all hell on Job. All hell is about to be unleashed. Do know this, Satan could give a rip about you. He would love to crush you, take you out, and destroy you and not feel a wink of angst about it. Because watch what happens. Scene three. By the way, um, the plan of God is the hope of my glorifying God. I'm so excited about this stuff. The plan of God is the hope of my glorifying God. Uh, uh, let me step back just a second. The fact that God knows what's going on, even though Job knows none of this, should give you and I great encouragement. Because even in those times, I've had them, you've had them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Even in those times where it's like, dude, God, do you care? What are you doing? Listen, he knows exactly what he's doing. God's love is not a pampering love. God's love is a perfecting love. God's love is about growing us and maturing us in him. It's not about our little kingdom comfort. It's about his glory. And even in the times when you and I don't get it, never ask for it, would prefer not to have it, do know this. God knows exactly what he is doing. And if there is a moment where you want to take your fuss, before the Lord, just imagine entering the throne room of God and bringing our fuss to him. I think it's going to be a really quick conversation. And in fact, honestly, I think as we enter the throne room, we won't even ask the question because the whole issue will be resolved just by what we see and behold. I want to encourage you, if you're going through a really hard time right now, I am not going to stand here and say, I know why, but I am going to point you to this. He does. So hang on and glorify him through it. He does. So hang on. 
fear of God is the foundation of my glorifying God. The plan of God is the hope of my glorifying God. And third here, my submission to God is the response of my glorifying God. My submission to him, knowing that he has it all in control and that he's way big, is to be my response. Verse 13, now there was a day back on earth when his sons and daughters, Job's, were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And, and there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them and, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you, all hell is breaking loose. Verse 18, 16, While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was speaking, there came another and said, the Chaldeans, Job, they formed three groups, made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. It doesn't stop there. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Job, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. Behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young people and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. I cannot even begin to comprehend having this happen. I think I can uh, uh, confidently make a statement that I don't think any of us have experienced something like this. We all know what tragedy is, but I don't think we've experienced something like this. Everything you've worked for your entire life, everything you own, all of your employees, and then your own 10 children, I can't even fathom. What would you have done? What would I have done? Would the idea of giving God glory have been on our minds? I honestly, (laughs) I'm not sure it would. But look, Then Job arose and cussed God out. No. Job arose and tore his robe. Understand, that's massive grief. Shaved his head. We don't think much of that nowadays. Can you imagine back in the day when you had like a rock or something to shave your head? How in the world did they do that? Understand, it was a process to do that. And then he fell on the ground, total anguish. And he worshiped. Who could do that? Someone who sees God so big that even if all hell is unleashed on me, he's so big in my eyes. I fear him so much. He's so awesome. 
I'm so confident in who he is that he knows everything and he's got a plan even for this. That I can submit myself to all of that even though I don't get it, like it, never ask for it. And worship him. Verse 21, and he said, naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked shall I return. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. Man, there's great theology there. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Please, this was not one of those like Christian wimpy things where it's like my life is just crushed and God is an awesome God. I mean, this wasn't some willy-nilly lightness thing. Like, let's just cover over it. This is in the deepest of the grief, the full reality of the angst and the pain and hell unleashing on his life. And he falls before God and he has nothing else to cling to. Nothing else to cling to. Except the fact that there is a God who is awesome and has it all figured out. By the way, Why did all of this happen to Job? Answer, verse 1 and verse 8. All of this hell was unleashed on Job. Why? Because he feared God. We have the idea that when we fear God, life's going to get better and better and more fuzzy bunny. And God here looks, have you seen my man? This guy gets it. Not a pawn to abuse him, but a ministry opportunity to be able to be a living testimony before Satan himself. I think we can agree that that's glorifying. Five G disciple is one that lives to glorify Jesus Christ, and it happens when the fear of the Lord is the foundation of my life. When God is so big, all the circumstances are small. It happens when I understand that God is who He is, knows what He knows, does what He does, and has it all figured out, and it's all good. And I hope in that. And I submit myself to that. We're going to take communion here in a few minutes. But before we do that, I want to read to you for a few minutes here um, some sections out of a book by Paul Tripp of his book, A Quest for More. It just brings all this together. And let me read this for you. You were not constructed to live only for yourself. You were created to be part of something so big, so glorious, so far beyond the ordinary, that it would totally change the way you approach every ordinary thing in your life. You were not wired to be fully satisfied with self-survival and self-pleasure. You were never meant to be a little king ruling a minuscule little kingdom with a population of one. Our mistake is that we shrink our Christianity to the size of our own lives. 
But God's grace cuts a hole in our self-built prisons and invites us to step into something so huge, so significant, that only one word in the Bible can adequately capture it, and the word is glory. We were made for the one glory that is transcendent, the glory of God. When you grasp this, your life begins to make a difference. If your life purpose is not tied to God's glory... You have denied your humanity. We were made to experience, to be part of, to be consumed by, and to live in pursuit of the one glory that is truly glorious, and that is the glory of God. Giving glory to God is to be the compass of your living. When you opt for a me-centered more, what you actually get is always much, much less. Satan knows that we're all, we all hunger for more. So his craft is to present to us less in a way that appears to be more. His ongoing lie to you is transcendence is found when you live at the center of your world. So live for you. Friends, it's a lie. When Jesus Christ enters your life, he isn't working to make your kingdom work. He's working to call you to an excitement with and a dedication to a much greater kingdom. Redemption's agenda is not about making your kingdom successful. It's about welcoming you to a much bigger, much better kingdom. Whose kingdom are you about? Whose kingdom are you building? Your own earthbound little kingdom? Little kingdom living turns life into an endless search for earthly treasure and an unending focus on personal need. That's a place where there is no room for God. Little kingdom living is self-focused, self-righteous, self-satisfying, self-reliant, self-rule, self-glorification. Life is the collection of little moments. Day after day, week after week, year after year. These little moments sent the character story of your life. Follower of Christ, you have been chosen to transcend the boundaries of your own hopes and dreams. Of your own plans and purposes. And the borders of your own family and friends. You can't squeeze the large vision lifestyle of the kingdom of God into the small vision confines of the kingdom of self. It will simply never fit. You've been chosen to transcend the furthest reach of your own definition of glory to be part of a greater glory. The glory of God and his work of making all things new. Have you settled for living too small? In the midst of the total disaster of sin, have you settled for something good when you've been chosen for something great? That is to bring glory to Jesus Christ. On the cross, Jesus Christ broke the power of the little kingdom. He paid the price and purchased the power for you to obey. And someday our kingdom conflict will be over. But until then, the battle of kingdoms goes on. Is your life going to be about your glory? Or is your life going to be about the glory of Jesus Christ? We were made to bring him glory.